Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Telling you, bro. What's been happening, bro? Uh, not too much. Still hitting more peggy Hi, my name is Shane Terrio, and welcome to The Rip Rap. Stories and insights from the front lines. My guest today is Mr. John Leventhal. John is a very successful guitarist, songwriter, and producer. He's won five Grammys, had 16 nominations for records he's produced on his own. It may be more, actually. Um, as usual on the Riff Raff, I have selfish ulterior motives. I like to interview people who were influential to me as a guitarist, producer, myself, and John is at the top of that list. His unconventional approaches to folk, country, and rock pop genres. It's really hard to pin down. That's why I love his sound so much. John is married to Roseanne Cash, an amazing singer-songwriter in her own right, and the daughter of country legend Johnny Cash. It's a freezing cold snowy day today in New York City. I'm walking over to John's studio. I walk in. John hands me a beautiful guitar and we start playing this little this little mystery jam of chords. This is a really fun interview and I hope you like it. John, thank you so much for carving out time to do this with me. Hey buddy. On this beautiful snowy day. Rather talk about it than uh, do it today anyway. I don't I know. Right. So no, man, I'm... you just handed me this acoustic this is, tell me a little bit about this guitar, because it's a magical that guitar. That is, oh God, what year? 1944, 0028. It belonged to my father-in-law, Johnny Cash, and it was given to me on my 60th birthday by my brother-in-law. Wow. So that was a very sweet gift. It needed uh, it needed some tender, loving care, which I gave it. And uh, yeah, now it's great. It's just, it's, it's you know... Rode hard and put up wet, but it's it's uh, it's a really sweet, very uh, soulful instrument for sure. Did Roseanne remember this guitar? I think she did. Yeah, this was kind of one that I think John kept sort of in his bedroom. He didn't give it at once. Um, he gave, he did a on my fiftieth birthday. He did give me a great guitar. He gave me a sort of a pre-war Martin D eighteen, which I was both shocked and thrilled by, which I have as well. Now your sixtieth, I remember that because. I saw you right before that, and you said you right. were going to make the trek down, do a tour, I, and end up in New Orleans. Yeah, did, I saw you in New Orleans, right? Yeah. On my 60th birthday. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was a trip. We, we went to Clemson. Yeah, man, that was great. <laughs> uh, we bonded, for sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. I was one of those things where, like, my entire sort of adult life, I sort of fantasized about driving down Highway 61, for better or worse. And uh, on my, you know, Roseanne kept going, what do you want to do in your 60th? And that was what sort of... I thought would be amazing, and it turned out to be amazing. Of course it did. Yeah, I'm it sure. actually also led to uh, Roseanne's last record called The River and the Thread. There was something so inspiring about the journey and the people that we met and the places we went and the stories we heard that we decided to actually sort of make a record loosely based around this kind of southern theme, and it turned out pretty good. So, Well, I, I want to go back a bit and tell people that are listening, you know, when I... I had first moved to Nashville. I was just learning how to back up singers, you know, which is an art in itself. It sure is. And one day I, I, and we'll get to that. And one day I I turn on Austin City Limits and I see Sean Colvin. And I was like, man, who is this guitar player? He's like, everything I wanted to do and everything I was trying to get out, you were doing. And it was you. Yeah. At that point, you know, it was really a, a, a big deal for me. And it was such a big deal. That I did this nerdy, geeky thing of looking at the record credit. I saw you, and Sean Colvin actually had a an address or something. I don't know what possessed me to do it, but I actually wrote a letter. Probably her manager's address, right? Well, it got yeah. forwarded to you, and I and you actually answered. I still have the letter. It's on John Leventhal um, letterhead, 
and it says, Dear Shane, nice to know I still have some guitar fans out there. I would I asked you for advice. I was like 20 years old. Oh, my God. And you said, you know, everybody in Nashville wants the same, and you underlined it. And right. you said, I would suggest listening to the greats. I think you said Grady Martin. Um, I forget who else. Yeah, I was hopelessly, I, I I was hopelessly out of time. Even No, man, I have it framed in my, <laughs> I still have it framed in oh, my studio. Oh, man. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of, va- God, it's funny, Shane, you hadn't, I mean, because we've been, you know, we've been more viscerally friends for the last four or five years, but right. you hadn't mentioned that. I, I definitely I did, had, yeah. I did mention it when we, we, I saw you when we were doing some things. I was with Madeline Peru, and, and we yeah. were at, in Portland or something, and, and I remember telling you, man, you wrote me this letter, and you're like, I wrote a fucking letter? Letter? <laughs> I would never do that. Now, you know. Yeah, that's sort of when we reconnect that, because I was like, I kept going like, who's that guitar player? He's really good. And you were, you sounded amazing that day. I remember that game. Thanks, man. Yeah. Well, um, so anyway, that was that was when I, 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 I remember vividly, I was like, man, this guy's using a volume pedal. I think he had a volume pedal and a capo. It was a Strat, maybe with EMGs. I can't remember. It's what. exactly what I had, yeah. yeah. I, I was kind of experimenting a lot with some version of a kind of folk pop ambient guitar thing back then, particularly with Sean Golden. I've sort of let that go a bit, I think, in the last 10 or 15 years. But I was definitely doing that back then, kind of come up with these kind of weird atmospheric washes well that's one thing i always liked about your sound even today i mean to me it's like when i hear it like coming from the south or it, it sounds like it's got that southern thing like you just played me some tracks you're working on now blind boys alabama and i remember when you were working on the william bell record i can hear it but it's got this new york sophistication to it <laughs> but not in a like um yeah, I try to pretentious keep, way. It's I try like to keep a really it pretty hip, well hid, yeah. But it's hip. Like the um the version of uh Born Under a Bad Sign, man, it's really like your thing, like the signature, those kind of fits and those sort of things you do. I mean Was it maybe Richard Thompson? I think he said once. You know, um, I should have a, a, a really concise answer for this, but Ali, people don't generally ask me about my guitar influences. That's that's interesting. I mean, what is my thing? You know, I love guitar, but I also am just sort of, in a general sense, drawn to musicality. So mm-hmm. I think whatever is going on with me, even in my guitar playing, is kind of tends to be about more than just guitar influences. If mm-hmm. that makes sense, so. But, you know, I definitely, there were many guitar players when I was in my 20s in particular that, you know, I was nuts about. I did love Richard Thompson. And for a minute there, I think he did influence me, although I can't say that that's lasted that long. But like the guys, you know, the usual suspects for a lot of guys. So who did I really, really love? I love James Burton a lot. Mm. I love guys like Curtis Mayfield a lot. Uh, Reggie Young. Mm-hmm. When I real when I dialed in who Reggie Young was, I loved him. I love guys. Reggie Young's famous for that. To- that yeah, the yeah, intro Drift to Away. Uh, Drift Away. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really. Uh, um, I don't know. Jesse Ed Davis, Ry Cooter oh, left yeah. a big imprint on yeah. me. And it, my thing wasn't that I was trying to copy them. Like I was never the kind of guy who like copied licks maybe like a couple of james burton's lit james burton licks back in the day although i've never had a chance to use them it's just more of their stance and their musicality and their approach and you know particularly guys i was never particularly drawn to sort of guitar hero kind of Mm -hmm. guys although you know i like hendrix you know as much as the next guy but i was more drawn to guys probably because i love the beatles and they were such a huge template for me i was just more drawn to guys who were doing cool interesting quirky eccentric musical things within a song within a track that you know great hooks cool sounds minimalistic parts good time good feel Mm -hmm. Uh, those kind of players left a big imprint on me you know so and then somewhere in there some sort of thrust toward just 
originality and musicality you know just trying to i never wanted to sound like anybody else or i don't you know what i mean yeah i don't know i'm not sure i always succeed but that's the goal anyway You know, a lot of producers, when they produce an artist, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's sort of over their their sound and their stamp sort of overwashes the artist themselves. Like you can hear such a huge, like Daniel Lenoir might be an example, I guess. You know, I love Daniel Lenoir, but like when you hear his production, it's him. It's like it's as much <coughs> his record, but you have a way of like. Yeah, I can still tell it's you. The Joan Osborne, all the Motown stuff and right. stuff you guys did that record. You have a way of like not overstepping, but you could still hear Thanks, your man. stamp. Yeah, uh, that's I that's take that really as high praise. That is, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, you know, I don't know what I don't know what that is. It's not driven from this sort of lack of ego or. It's more. I just I hate repeating myself. So, you know, it's sort of, um, I think it's it's natural. It's like if you get good at doing anything, guitar playing, bass playing, drumming, writing, you know, engineering records, writing songs, mixing, any of those things, you get good at it You and you get decent results, you start to want to repeat yeah. what you've done because you're getting good results. I think the thing you're talking about with me is, and I'm not saying I'm always successful at it, I definitely put some consciousness into not repeating myself, into forcing myself to not do the same thing I did on the last record or two records ago, Mm -hmm. like trying to think about it differently. Um, I don't get married to any guitar sound in the studio. I mean, a little more live, I think. I have a little more guitar ego and guitar sound and a little more of me thrown in there. But when I make records like... I, I don't have an ego as a player. It's all about how can I make an interesting record? And for me, that really starts with, is it a great song? And is the vocal killer? And then what can we do to make the track interesting, but like you say, not, but totally be about supporting the singer and creating what I would call some real compelling feeling in the track, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. I'm always referencing that. Is the song great? Can the song be better? Is the vocal great? How do we make the vocal sound better? Great. And are we really dealing with a real feeling here that we care about, or are we just sort of jerking around because we know how to jerk around and make decent records? If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And you can't, you know, you can't always get the trifecta and get all three, but that's sort of the framework in which I tend to think about it. So it's good that you tell me that it doesn't sound like I'm repeating myself because that is something I put energy into. You know, you know, one record I may over compress some stuff. The next record. I'll try not to use that much compression. Or one record, I'll use a bunch of reverb and delay. And the next record, like William Bell's record, hardly any reverb or delay. Mm-hmm. You know, so of course it's also dependent on the artist and you know who the artist is and what's required, or my interpretation of what's required. But there you go. And it's nice to think that a little bit of my thing shines through. No oh, matter absolutely. What. Yeah. yeah, more than a little. <laughs> people know you as a great guitar player, but they also know you. A lot of people know you. As- great producer which you are what was your first production project uh was sean colvin's first record on columbia this was even before sony bought columbia was that steady on it's called steady on um yeah i mean i think i was just like a lot of cats uh i I sort of hit a uh, i can't say it was like this like uh total epiphany of one day I realized this but you know I think I started out I started out a little late maybe a little later than most people like I bought my first electric guitar when I was a senior in college so I'm like 20 years old and I know nothing basically I know nothing about guitars and know nothing about music I know nothing about like you were talking about it's like I don't know how to back up a singer I don't know anything I just mm-hmm. have a, some kind of instinct some kind of musicality lurking back there in a series of events, I kind of got lucky. In the first thing that I was really lucky to get was when I was a kid, I got a gig with this guy Billy Vera, who's still around, lives in L.A. Billy Vera and the Beaters. Billy Vera and the Beaters. This was before he was in the Beaters. He grew up in New York, and uh, Tommy Wolk, before he was T Bone, was the bass player in the band. And wow. you are now basically taking T Bone's place with Hall and Oates, which is incredible because. 
Tommy was, um, I can't say he was a mentor. Uh, he was a little bit older than I was. And I was sort of the kid in Billy's band and Tommy was the bass player. And it was basically, I've said this before in interviews, it was like my school, right? Like I, I got into that band having some kind of musical instinct, but really not a lot of experience. And, you know, I had, I had a lot to learn. And that band was a great way to learn it. And Tommy was fantastic. Billy was an extraordinarily great band leader. We played primarily for people to dance. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't about listening. It mm -hmm. was about keeping people up and dancing. And Billy pulled from every conceivable genre of music, like a lot of R&B and soul and rock and pop and uh, like country. Like we did everything, like jump blues, like Louis Jordan stuff. We did classic 60s soul. We did like a couple of Al Green tunes. We did Haggard tunes. It was wow. Yeah, it was great. It's and university, like, man. Yeah, and my sensibility, I think that was already in me, where I kind of loved a lot of different kind of music. I was never drawn to any particular kind of thing, so it was great. Anyway, that it's a long winded say that a long winded way to say that it started me on kind of the sideman journey, like mm -hmm. a lot of guys go sure. on. So okay, I'm going to make my living playing guitar, and so. I was kind of able to do that, you know, and Billy left, went to L.A. Not soon after that, I met Sean Colvin, but I was playing in, you know, you know, at least a dozen bands, you know, gigging, trying to gig as much as I can, four or five nights a week, making 50, 60, 100 bucks a night, feeling pretty good about myself. But at some point, I could just tell I wasn't really happy doing it, hmm. but I hadn't really kind of grokked this idea like oh why don't you try to be a record producer a because it seems sort of unattainable and I, you know i wasn't even totally sure you know i was still learning about everything how to be a sideman how to play in recordings how to play live how to arrange i tended to have a lot to say about how music was arrained in the bands i played in live you know mm -hmm. so but it was it, a natural sort of i guess i guess out. yeah it wasn't yeah. like i'm gonna be the arranger or i'm gonna be a producer it was just some it was a flow that i led toward and basically i got really lucky again it's incredible how you look back and you go well if i hadn't met billy vera i wouldn't have gotten better and more musical then if i hadn't met sean colvin i wouldn't have sort of because I was always writing songs, but I didn't have an outlet for it. I sort of had an original pop rock band with some friends, but we didn't really ever get it together. I met Sean Colvin, and we just intuitively clicked, and we started writing songs. It took us you know, a couple of years to sort of find our voice as songwriters. But then we started writing these songs that seemed to have some substance to it and a, a bit of originality, and I had a home recording set up. I guess I was a little ahead of the curve on that. I recorded, quote-unquote, produced the demos that got her signed. And once again, I got lucky. The demos were, I guess, cool enough that... Uh, That's what some, I was going to say. Like yeah. Some guys put their heart and soul in the, to an artist, and when, it, when they get their deal, then the record company goes, oh, now we need to get X famous producer in here. Yeah. Well, so I was think, it hard to get I, your shot? I, you know, I don't totally... Yeah, I think I don't totally remember... Like, it's weird how it went down. Yeah, it wasn't obvious, like, like I was going to produce it. I think they wanted this guy, Steve Adabo, who had produced um, uh, Luca for Suzanne Vega to produce it. And he was also a partner in Sean Colvin's management company. So they felt more comfortable with him. So we started us trying to produce it together. Hmm. And that didn't quite work out. And then I ended up producing it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was lucky. I think in... Maybe in part, uh, they didn't really know what they had, right? Like, they knew that... I mean, Colvin was great. They, you could tell she was great. But the music we were doing, it wasn't an obvious fit in the 80s. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Right? It, it wasn't was a like, fresh thing, man. When I heard it, it was... <coughs> yeah, it was that. Right. So I don't think they truly understood what they had. And... Um, so I snuck in there. Yeah. And then it won a Grammy. And so the fact that it won a Grammy and sort of sold pretty well, and the fact that I co-wrote the songs and played a good portion of the instruments on it, sort of all of a sudden, well, maybe I'm a record producer. But it wasn't as though I was driven by being a record producer. But it mm -hmm. did sort of feel like I arrived.
And then just to sort of complete the arc of this story, the same time I was working with Colvin, I was also working with this guy, Jim Lauderdale. Sure. Who was a little more country-oriented. And Jim, Jim and I had written a lot of songs together. And it was quite different from what I was doing with Colvin. And sort of right after Colvin's record came out, Jim got signed to Warner Brothers. And Rodney Crowell heard it, was interested in producing it. And he was the same thing. He was sort of like, who did the demos? And it was like this guy, John Leventhal. And I got in again. And That produ- record, I had that record. I What is it? It had a, t- I don't remember the title, but it was, had <coughs> a song. Of Love. Yeah, it had King of Broken Hearts. King of Broken Hearts, yeah. Yeah, I ripped off a bunch of your stuff from there. Oh, uh, there you go. So those are like my two different worlds. One was sort of this quirky sort of pop folk world. And the other one is a little bit more rootsy, you know, um, country bluesy. Uh, yeah, it was yeah. hip country. I call it hip country. Oh, there you go. I'm not a kid anymore I'm not the clown That's just here to amuse you I wasn't fooling around So those two records sort of uh, basically pushed me out the door, and, and that. Well, but I, I, I never could go back to being a sideman after that. I, 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 I guess I, it wasn't really meant to be. Yeah, well, you have too strong of a voice, I think, to be contained as a well, sideman. That's what my wife says. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's too strong. <laughs> Or I had that record, Mark Cohn, The Rainy Season. That was another big record for you. Well, in that rhythm section, it was Hutch and uh, uh, Keltner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a a lot of fun to make that record. It was. It was a great time. I think it was a a bit of a disappointment for Mark because his first record had been so huge. Because he had a hit. Nothing like a hit to sell records. But The Rainy Season was sort of a hit. No. It wasn't? No. It was uh, the record label. uh, You know, I won't go into a whole rigmarole about the music business or record executives or the complications of artists Mm -hmm. and, you know, and all this. Uh, No. No. It was definitively uh, less than the first record. Now, I think musically, there's some great stuff on there. (coughs) But it didn't sell. And that, I know, was a disappointment to everybody. So... I mean, that's a whole other subject. It's like, I know, selling yeah. records, not selling records, making artistically satisfying records. It's complicated. Yeah. But the bottom line was, I have incredibly fond memories of making that record. It was a, it was a blast. What else should we talk about? Man, I remember trying, and I asked you about this once. The, uh, I can't play it. But... Well, see, now that's not me. That's Stuart Smith. I can't play, but it's someone. Look at you. The wheels of like. It's, is that standard tuning? Uh, that is standard tuning. I think he may have dropped the D down. But that was, uh, so that was the first record I produced for Roseanne. And I had heard her play. She had already written that song. And I had heard her play it live with a trio, a bass player, Stuart Smith on electric guitar and Roseanne on acoustic. And, you know, I was wowed. I mean, I've said this, I just said this more recently in an interview. I mean, Stuart Smith is just, you know, he's just a beautiful guitar yeah. player, man. He's great. You know, he's a... It's like it's all the stuff that I think you and I like. He's not only a great guitar player with all the ability to play great stuff on the guitar, but he's also really musical and he come you know, he knows about parts and ideas. That was Stewart's part. I just I never even considered playing it's like a it. banjo yeah. thing. Don Henley, like, 
I don't know, it was about 10 years ago. I didn't get the gig. It's a whole other funny story. It was me and two other guys. <laughs> was Stuart already playing with him? Stuart was there. So I had to be in touch with him for a month about all the parts, right? So yeah. I thought that was cooler than... It was like subbing for somebody anyway for Don Haley. So Henley's there and he's you know, walking around and he, he wants to play Hotel California over and over and over. And I go over to Stuart. I was like, hey man, how'd you play the wheel? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like... Who you talking about? It was supposed to be playing uh, right. Hotel California, but I always thought it was an, like an alternate tuning because I could never. No, out no, standard. it's not. It's so, just it like yeah, D add nine. Well, okay, now I got to retune. But here, play on this one. Uh, that's all right. No big deal. I mean, now, I don't want to hey. divert from your own stuff. I, I just I, I'm in uh, total flexible mode here. No, I mean I don't. I'm not going to embarrass myself on your podcast. Um, there was a moment when I needed so. to play it, so I did take the time to learn it. It's, uh, you know, Stuart plays with a thumb pick and a finger pick. So he has a, I don't do that. I play with a flat pick. So you really sort of need to have the thumb pick, finger pick thing mm-hmm. to really make it work. But basically it's D add nine. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think it's... Oh, that. Over the sixth minor. So what do you call that? Uh, B minor 11? B minor 11? Yeah, B minor 11. So those, pretty straight ahead. Those are your three? Yeah, yeah. So D add 9, A. Cool. Those are your three chord forms, but it's not in a tune. I wonder if we would just play something. I don't know, man. What do you want to play? I just want to hear how you approach so I'm playing just a little G so all right. this is all right let's do some I'll tell you your, what uh, your Leventhalisms I'll do my Leventhalisms all right and such as they are hey what are you doing you're tuning well I'm just trying to get away from uh, yeah so there's my you know sometimes like I'm just trying to go to a slightly different place than the other instrument that's a what let's see what happens see tuning is everything you know if you're kind of in tune with another instrument Everything, uh, you may not be playing that great, but it just sounds better. Remember we were talking the other day at that guitar shop, and I, I told you, like, Rye Cooter, I can hear, I've said this several times on this bike, there's a, there's a Mavis Staples record he plays on, and man, I know that guitar is out of tune, it sounds so good. I don't yeah, know how he well, does Rye, it. The Rye's feel a... just trumps everything. Yeah, well, in his case it does. I mean, let's face it, he's, he's in a class by himself. So what'd you do? Drop D and something? <clears throat> well, I, t- yeah, I tuned down to sort of basically a G tuning, but with the E string down to C. Oh, E string down to C. Wow. Well, it kind of. This is a tuning I, I've been using a lot over you don't the have last. To give away all yeah, your secrets. No, on you here. know, I've already given it away. So <laughs> if anybody cares, it might be like the one thing I get asked about on a mildly regular basis is what is that tuning? So it's basically. Uh, 
it's uh, notes G, I mean, low string to high is C, G, and then everything else is standard tuning. Oh. So you sort of get the top four strings are standard, but you have a G oh, and you have a C. Ooh, nice. So you get the four chord, like the low. You do, and then it gives you these. Yeah, it gives you these options for sort of nice, wide voicings, like. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I use it a lot for songwriting. It's just another sort of strategy to. Just sort of be different. Yeah, Try get out of the box. Yeah. Yeah, man. That sounds beautiful. Yeah, so that's just that's a I don't want to say it's a gimmick, but it's uh it's been a useful tool. I mean, you got all the you're such a beautiful player. I just want to be you, man, when I grow up, you know. No, man. You got, I can already tell you got your own thing. I can hear you looking for different phrases and cadence and voicings that are just you it's like I, I hear you play and i don't like a lot of times i'll hear people play and i'll go it sounds good but i've sort of heard all that before but you're like one of maybe six players i'm not kidding when i heard you play with madeline Perry, i i turned to rose and i said that's a really good player it's like you don't sound you sound like yourself and but you have all the but you have all i can hear like you know what you're doing you understand harmony you have good time you know how to get a good sound. You have all this stuff going on, man. It's like they're not—they're not that many guys who can do that. There really aren't. It's like, well, thank you, man. I appreciate that. I mean, there you go. And then it's like, what do you do with it? <laughs> well, it's hard. That's the thing, right? I know you told me um, the other day at that shop. You say you, you have a real passion for an acoustic. Acoustic guitars, you have a pretty extensive collection. I do. I kind of, I really do love old acoustics. You know, it's a fair, it's a big part. I kind of, I'm a little more drawn to um, great acoustics than electrics. I've kind of settled on my, I don't have like, I mean, I like, look, you know, I like everything. But I'm not like, I don't crave like a pre-CBS telly or anything. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm a basically a Telecaster player. I don't have any really old tellies, but the ones I have play I see, really yeah, there's well. like three or four yeah. literally yeah, piled yeah, I, I, on top I do of like Telecaster, so that's kind of home base for me. But, you know, look, man, when I made Steady On, I owned a 70s Telecaster, a late 60s Strat, and I didn't even own an acoustic guitar. I wow. would borrow Sean Colvin's, and I had a P bass. So I started to play bass, too. Yeah back when I first started. So I had a P bass and those two electrics and that was it. Yeah. Um, you know, and for a long time I didn't care about or think about older vintage guitars. Uh and then um unfortunately I became friends with G. E. Smith somewhere in there. <laughs> and he would start to hand me these great guitars in the thirties and forties and I started was like, Oh wow, okay, these are really special. You know, I don't think I would have been able to really appreciate it before then and I definitely didn't have the money. So um, you know, so one of the small perks of, you know, having done mildly well is that, yeah, I can sort of indulge mm -hmm. in this little thing with the goose eggs. I don't go crazy about it. If I don't use them, I get rid of them, sell them. Yeah. But I like, I like having them. I've settled on, I'm partial to sort of, uh, so these are triple O's from the forties. I, I like these a lot and mm -hmm. sort of the Gibson equivalent L, uh, L double O's I like. And then I'm really, I'm partial to, uh sort of Gibson uh, dreadnoughts, you know, like J45s, J45s, yeah. and Southern Jumbos. That's kind of it, really. I have a J45, a 52 that I scratched six months ago, taking it out of the case, man. It was, uh, it really hurt. You know what? Just it was it, mint before. Oh, well, that's hard, yeah. I, don't, I try not to buy them if they're too mint, because uh, I like to use them. Hey, man, you know, if you're using them, they're going to get banged up. I it's, know. They call it prestige. Yeah. <laughs> relicking. Yeah, yeah. It's natural relicking. Oh, yeah. I mean, dude, we take as long as you need.
sounds great. Yeah, I mean, it's got a kind of raw, vibey thing, I guess. I kind of like it. Um, I was basically so just starting to work on this Blind Boys track. It needs an electric guitar part. I couldn't decide whether I would just go with the telly, which is. You know, sort of my default position, I guess, on a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. but, uh, so that's, uh, you know, a lot of these, you want to get all guitar geeky? Sure. You we know, can. sometimes for me, it's like when I'm making a record, it's like, is this record going to kind of be the bridge pickup kind of record, or is it going to be the neck pickup kind oh. of record? <laughs> you know, um, and I like both worlds a lot. It's amazing how, you know, Leo Fender just got it right, man. On so many levels, amps, guitar, I mean, it's like classic. Now that telly neck pickup is, what is that? It's like a filter drone or something. One of those, something like that, called? yeah. Sounds good though, right? Oh, it sounds beautiful, man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so this uh, Blind Boys track obviously is in the key of D, so I have the, you know. You're from New York originally? Yeah, I was born here, but I grew up 20 miles north. Okay. Yeah. So how do you play? Like, man, it sounds like James Burton or something. It sounds like a really hip version of, of uh, not a version, it's you, but it sounds like it's got that feel, man. You've got that know. kind of southern feel. You know, man, I don't know. I can't answer that one. That's going to have to be left to wiser <laughs> wiser heads than mine. <clears throat> you know, man, I don't know. I'm just, I think I'm like a lot of other guys. I mean, I, I'm sure you're the same way. I mean, I just really love music. You know, mm -hmm. and so I paid attention. You know, I tried to. Uh, I don't think I was overtly, overly analytical about it, but if something struck me and I liked it and felt compelled by it, I sort of pay attention to what it was. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't just let it go past. So, you know, so you know, all these guys to me relate to each other. A lot of it is about time and feel. Yeah, that's like, what I wanted to bring up. Like, right, everything you play is just dead on in the pocket. Well, know? I'm having a little problem with my arm and my hand, so I didn't feel like that today. But basically, you know, you could draw, like, for me, like, you may say that's James Burton, but to me, that's, what is that? In my mind, that's a combination of James Burton, Keith Richards, Rye Cooter, you know, Chet Atkins. Like, I hear all of that in what I'm doing. Like, I... I it's not that I'm playing their licks. No, it's it sounds just, like you. I didn't mean to... Right. No, no, yeah. yeah. No, I know that. I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's like... That's all... It's all connected to me somehow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, even with... Uh, who else has got great time? You know, I don't know. West Montgomery... You know, people, players with great time are always appealing. Yeah. To sure. all of us, right? Yep. Like, I love West Montgomery. His time is like just yeah. stupid. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Rise time is great. I always loved Jesse Ed Davis, who a lot of people don't know about. His time, I thought, was great and like sat way back. Clarence White, loved him. His time was great. 
James's time seems pretty great. Um, so that's good time um, and a feel for a groove in a pocket is important to me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you can get the you can be a little the simplicity doesn't matter as much. I mean, it, it, it you can pull off anything hey, with good time. We were talking. Yeah, good time. It's everything. It's yeah. like my son. Uh, I don't think he's taken it in yet. My son's playing some guitar, and you know, instead of showing him licks or chords, like the thing I keep telling him, which I wish someone would have told me when I was like eighteen or nineteen, is like, good time, is like, two thirds the battle. Like if you have really good time, it's like, almost anything you do is going to sound good and right. musical, right? right. It's, hard to explain Especially that in to somebody studio that's when yeah, things yeah. get really yeah. uh, revealed you know was songwriting just a natural thing you got into or was it from the beginning you were writing songs um i've been asked this too i don't i think intuitively it was in me from the very beginning uh i remember when i first learned my first four chords like everybody else i wasn't drawn to learning other people's songs not even beatles songs which i loved I just tried immediately to put the four chords to use and coming up with my own tune, which, for better or worse, I still remember. Um, <laughs> uh, it, now, why is that? Who knows? It's in some people. It's not in other people. The songwriting thing was in me, and I think it was even in me sort of a step ahead of being a player or a musician, the desire to write songs. What's interesting is that I never had the... I, don't, I can't sing that well, and I never could. And even if I could... I'm not sure the desire to be an artist, capital A, is in me. But the desire to write songs was always in me. And I didn't consciously seek out being a record producer, but obviously in some way my energy was moving toward being a record maker in which I had the opportunity to write songs, which for me has been, you know, finding great collaborators who are willing to write with me and, you know, I could complain a lot about the music business, but one thing I should be thankful for is that I've been in a position to write with all these extraordinary artists and writers and lyricists and get to make records with people like Sean Colvin, Roseanne Cash, and Lauderdale, William Bell. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, um, it's uh, in some ways, the songwriting is the most satisfying part for me. Mm -hmm. well, you get to... You get to put all the pieces together. Yeah, it's more satisfying than being a producer or making records. Not that I don't like making records or being a producer or playing, but the songwriting thing is the thing that feels the deepest and goes the deepest to create. A now, let's say you get together with a, an artist you're working with, and you, you know, you, somebody you think is inspiring, and you know you're into, or let's say it's a girl for. Just an example. I mean, would you bring? Um, would you have a set of amount of songs already to a, a session, or would you like? What do you have ideas that you just have a storehouse of ideas, or would you pull up a drum loop first and write to that, or I mean, is it a mix of everything? Yeah, it's uh, a mix of everything. So uh, I've been doing it long enough now that uh, I've approached it in every conceivable way, and I try not to get too bogged down in one way to approach it or a great deal of expectation about anything other than being in the moment and trying to be with my collaborator and come up with stuff. So the bottom line is I've done it every conceivable way. In the beginning with Colvin, it was pretty cut and dry. And like I would basically come up with these tracks, little mm -hmm. demo tracks, and she would put lyrics to it. Um, over the years... I've gotten away from that. I actually don't like doing that anymore. But the bottom line is, I'm cool. I'm cool in any way to approach it. There isn't yeah. like I'm always writing. Like I have my iPhone. I have like 300 song ideas on here while I play mm -hmm. guitar. Like I'll be playing guitar. I go, oh, that could be a good idea. So that's a reference. Sometimes mm -hmm. I get really inspired, and I'll actually still do it. Like I'll go to my studio and cut a track without it, you know, with a melody in mind and and sort of an approach. And in plenty of cases, I don't have, I meet with a collaborator, I have absolutely nothing and just go with an intuitive flow, spontaneity in the moment. And that can be great too. It's all great. Or a lot of times, uh, particularly on Roseanne's last record, for the most part, she wrote lyrics and I just set them to music, which I love too. Mm -hmm. Actually, mm -hmm. I'm starting to love that more and more. Um, 
And uh, so it's all great. And this goes along with what I was saying earlier. I don't like getting bogged down in one approach. Like, I don't like getting bogged down in one approach to making records. I don't like getting bogged down in one approach to playing guitar. Mm -hmm. I don't like getting bogged down in one approach to songwriting. I like mixing it up because it, A, keeps you fresh and interested. And there's nothing like surprising yourself, particularly if you've been doing it for three decades. So it's like... You know, you have to find these strategies to surprise yourself, to not have it that together, but to be able to pull it out of the air when it's flying by, right? Yeah, sure. It can be very satisfying. It's hard to explain if you're not committed to the art of songwriting as an art, as like, let's say you might be as a player. If you're committed to the art of songwriting, then you see there's this kind of infinite possibility of how to approach it and do it and what it means and where to get it. Is it? So, yeah, it's it's so many things. So many is deep, man. And yeah. In some ways, it's deeper than everything else. It's like, how do you do it? You know, and it's like really hard to write really simple songs. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the temptation is to try to be hip and cool and write these cool chord changes, which I'm totally guilty of, or a great little modulation. But you know, the hardest—it's true—the hardest thing to write is a good three chord song, like a good one. You know, like a really good three chords in the truth. <laughs> that kind of thing, man, it's really hard. It is. Yeah. <clears throat> With yeah. just the right slant on the melody, just the right way to use those three chords. And right. of course, a great, like, really compelling, memorable lyric, you know? Yeah. Challenging. What What are, uh, give me like two or three of your, the, the songs you're most proud of, either oh. on a production standpoint, Damn. songwriter. I mean, just anything, you know. Oh, it, man, I it don't could know, be, It know. could be just some things that come to mind that you're really proud of. Well, I of. really like this song, The Three of Me, on William Bell's most recent record, like, uh, a lot. Uh, it was the first song that I wrote for, it was before I even met William. And I just knew I just knew it was, it had something. And I still like, it's rare that I finish a record and, and sort of like it, like a year later. Generally, I listen to it and I'll go, oh God, I wish I would have done this, that. I still actually like William's record. It's so, a great, beautiful sounding record, man. I listened to it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. But I particularly like that first track, The Three of Me. I think lyrically, uh, uh, my buddy Mark Cohn had that um, first verse. And he, he sent it to me sort of for us to write it together, not even for William. But I stole it and thought, oh, this will be good for William. And somehow, the, you know, I thought a good version of sort of some Memphis-y, Muscle Shoals-y soul tune came out of me that wasn't trying to copy that. So I was, I was proud of it. Last night I had a dream And there were three of me There was the man I was, the man I am And the man I want to be There's a song on uh, the Sean Colvin record called A Few Small Repairs which was the album that had the the song Sonny Came Home on Mm -hmm. which was a hit but there was a song on there that I really liked a lot that I thought, uh, and I still like it, although, to be honest, I haven't listened to it in a while, called The Facts About Jimmy. I liked it. It was uh, I thought it was one of an uh, instance where it was, wasn't was quite a three-chord song, but it was sort of operating in that realm. And, uh, and I thought Sean's lyric was great, and the vibe of the track was great, and I thought I came up with a cool little horn arrangement that just, nudged it to hipness but didn't like get all involved in it and uh i'm proud of that one jimmy's married and he lives down south and his wife lives somewhere colder sees another woman in a badlands town that was a while ago. I don't know, man. It's hard. I, I'm proud of Roseanne's last record. I can't say there's any one song on there that... Uh, I, I, I'm proud of that record. I think that's Roseanne and mine, best, our best work as a team. I'm really proud of it. I think Roseanne's lyric writing is extraordinary. Her singing, inspiring, and... Um, 
I like that record. I like the first track, I guess, called A Feather's Not a Bird. It won a Grammy. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I like about it is it's a one-chord vamp, which is not something I do. We're just vamping on a C chord for like 16 bars. So, um, you know, those are fun to do. So I don't know, man. I'm going down to Florence, going to wear a pretty dress. I'm bad at talking about that. No, I, yeah, well, you're a humble guy, but plenty of stuff, man. Dude. Yeah, thank you for uh, thank carving you. out the time here. And, uh, cool. So, how, you know. so I don't even, I've been curious about the whole podcast thing. So now what do you edit it down? I and then how it. do you get it out there? Well, I put it on iTunes. I have my own, I have a website, and then it goes out to like all these different um, streams. I don't know what. Like what would it be called? Uh, like what is your. Uh, my podcast is called The Riff Raff. The riffraff. Yeah. I and like it. So you were really a baby when you wrote to me that first time. I was about 20. Wow. See, this is the kind of stuff I like, kind of mystery chords. So now if your antenna open... This is a song, right? Yeah. Mystery song. So that's the way my mind works. So if, if I accidentally hit this, I'd be like, oh yeah, there's a song. Pay attention. Don't let it go by. So the other key to songwriting to me is to turn off your internal editor in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like, it's don't... hard to do once you become sort of proficient on guitar because we, we like <coughs> right. the technical side. Like, I know what chords are, but what we were playing just now, I had no idea because I just reacted to. Uh, right. I mean, I, I could say, so, okay, that's a G, but that's what I was talking about, off. like yeah. keeping your antenna open, because that's the kind of. I don't, know, I don't do it all the time. There are plenty of times I try to just do normal chords, but. Uh, yeah, a lot of times I'll start playing guitar and I'm like, I don't I don't think about the chords I'm playing. Like I'll just find some weird fingering. Not that this is all that weird, but and I'll go, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And I won't think about it, and I'll just go. Because I'll say, don't think about it, don't try, just intuitively start playing whatever you're playing. And you know, half the time I'm I go, oh well there's the germ of a cadence or a cool seat. And I'll just kind of either record it or... Yeah, I don't know, it's weird. I don't know, the songwriting thing is weird. It's hard to get that, that sort of innocence, that uh, that real primal thing where you don't really know what you're doing. Once you play guitar for 30 years, you know... It's I can hard get, to get it. It's hard to clean the, the slate and, like, think just clear. Well, you know, know that's why I say... Um, that's what I'm saying. It's uh, that... 
you have to train yourself to turn your analytical internal critic off. Right. In the beginning. Right. Eventually you need it, right? Eventually yeah. you need it because you want it to be coherent and musical and stuff. Yeah. But when it comes to songwriting or even sometimes playing on tracks, like I, I go blank and I just try to just respond and I try not to think about what I'm playing. Oh, am I going to play a G triad? Am I going to voice it like this? Or I don't think about it. I just try to throw my unconscious brain at it. More often than not, there'll be the germ of an original or decent idea in there. It doesn't always happen. A lot of times it just sounds like, oh, what the fuck are you doing? But it's a good strategy for not... Because you know what I'm talking about, man. Here's where I think a lot of guys fall down. And maybe not fall down, but a lot of guys get stuck in the studio because they get hung up in repeating the thing that they did 20 times before that sort of worked. Sure. Yeah. Right? And there's nothing wrong with that, particularly if it's good or it worked. Like, okay, that's cool. You've got that tool in your toolbox. You can always use it. But it's you have to either have the natural ability or you have to create the ability in yourself through a certain kind of weird discipline of also just throwing all that shit out and just responding in the moment with no clear analytical uh, understanding of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. This sounds like complete bullshit when I hear no, myself I, talk about it. I know what you mean, yeah. exactly. It's yeah. sort of like, don't think, don't think, just play. Yeah, and maybe it'll suck, maybe it'll suck like unbelievably, but you might find a great four eight bars in there where you go, whoa, what is that? Mm -hmm. It's know? just like throwing paint on a canvas, man. You're just yeah, yeah. kind of seeing... Yeah. Yeah, and then you go back and organize it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I have to throw all this part out. Yeah, the part of me that wants to know exactly what I'm doing and, you know... Well, you can go back later if you need to write a chart or you need to tell a you know a keyboard player voicing you want this right. melody now that's where the that's where the technical theory comes in you know but i like just throwing my hands on a guitar and not necessarily knowing what i'm doing a lot mm -hmm. a lot yeah, like the other day, I just, I don't think I'd ever, I mean, it's not that it's any great revolutionary thing. I never quite found this voicing, and the other day I accidentally found it. I was like, oh my God, that's useful. Yeah. You know. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's like that kind of stuff really stays with me. that kind of shit all the time and it makes my head like oh, stop doing that find some other shit to play you know i don't know i'm getting off on a tangent this is probably no. the this is probably the most interesting part of what we're talking it's about it's great but yeah. only musicians are going to care yeah, about it's it right? okay I'll, I'll edit some things well there you go that was fun john leventhal march 2017 thanks for listening to riff raff and as I've said before, if you do enjoy this, I have many other episodes. I have some good ones coming up, too. Um, they take a ton of time to edit. I don't ask for any money or anything. I'm not trying to make any money on this. But um, I do ask you to please leave me a good rating on, on um, iTunes. Leave a good uh, review if you can. And that definitely helps boost the cred of this podcast. Um, and I love hearing from you guys. Any comments, anything like that, see you out on the road. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 
91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.